Welcome back, everybody. You're on Empty Brass, and this is another episode with your host, CJ Boxrude. Before we get started today, I just wanted to mention one thing. I've done previous episodes with Charlie Perez and Matt Gallant, the guests on this episode. In Season 1, Episode 13 with Charlie, Season 1, Episode 6 with Matt Gallant, and Eli was my co-host. If you haven't listened to those episodes, I encourage you to go back and give those a listen as well. We do some background and some intro building with both of them so you can kind of find out more about them as a shooter and their progression. In this specific episode, we decided to jump right into some of the relevant topics. For example, MRDS or a pistol red dot system and the parallax. Matt and Charlie together did some testing to find out who offered the best parallax or least amount of parallax on their own. And I love that kind of thing where they take a deep dive on their own rather than just listening to other information from other people. And they talk a little bit about their results, as well as some of the rifle results, rifle optic results that they did as well. As always, this podcast is sponsored, and it's sponsored by Mac Defense. Mac Defense specializes in building duty-grade handguns for armed professionals and responsible armed civilians. They offer a top-tier product at a price point accessible to the working man. Their no-compromise approach mixed with expert craftsmanship lead to a fine-tuned product with a focus on functionality. In an industry inundated with Gucci guns that fall on their face, they strive to build guns as good as they look in all conditions. From complete builds to modifying customer-supplied guns and components, they've got you covered. Make sure you visit MacDefenseIndustries.com for more. The more you think about something, the harder it becomes to ignore. If I mention recoil management or muzzle rise, for example, suddenly you've thought about it, right? See how Atlas Perfect Zero changes the recoil and muzzle rise conversation altogether at atlasgunworks.com forward slash perfect zero. What's going on, everybody? You're on another episode of Empty Brass, and I'm your host, CJ Boxrud. Today, I've got another episode, both returning guests. I'm super excited and super honored. Uh, I'm bringing Matt Gallant. Matt, thanks for being here with me today. Thanks for having us, CJ. And then Charlie Perez, a, a fellow Atlas guy. Uh, honored to have you on again, Charlie. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks so much. Okay, so uh, I'm going to start today with kind of an obvious discussion, but I think a lot of people are probably curious on both your guys' perspective. And Charlie, I'll start with you. Uh, 2020 is obviously a different shooting season uh, to other years past uh, with all of the things that we've got going on in the world. And I'm just curious, not so much from your individual take, uh, but more of like a, a widespread look or a zoomed out look. Uh, what's going to be impacted this year? How is this season going to be astronomically different? How is it going to be the same? Uh, what are the impacts do you think all the way going to the world shoot uh, that all of this COVID shutdown uh, buffoonery is? What do you think the impacts are? So, that, I mean, obviously matches are going to get canceled. They have been getting canceled or pushed back or, you know, rescheduled and that kind of thing. And I think that um, it's a little bit aggressive for some of the matches to think that, well, I can cancel now or delay it until later in the year because, I mean, the schedule, even before COVID happened, I mean, the schedule's crazy as it is, mm-hmm. it, even, you know, just on the USPSA match side. So I, I think that there's, there's going to be some interesting, like, overlaid matches Okay. towards the end of the year and I think some of the top shooters will be able to do like the two-in-ones like doing two major matches in one weekend kind of thing where they shoot like the staff schedule on like Friday Thursday Friday and then fly over to another place and shoot the match on Saturday Sunday but for the, the average people like us mm. you know it's we kind of have to do a pick and choose on what we want to do so I think that you know from a 
the matches that aren't already full then mm-hmm. in, in the fall they're they're going to be full and that kind of thing but i mean i think from a, a perspective of participation i mean it, it's it's a bummer that the matches have been canceled but you know at least for me in colorado you know I, i'm doing just as much if not more shooting on my own practicing and that kind of stuff like i was joking with matt while we we're driving over here that you know I, i've basically shot two major matches worth of shooting every you know weekend yeah in practice alone you know so it's not like i'm starving to shoot sure you know maybe i'm, I'm starving a little bit to participate with others and have that camaraderie but really hasn't affected me from a you know trying to get better and enjoy the game yeah when i, I just kind of wonder too some people that are very uh, ingrained in the flow of the season sort of you know at this part of the season i'm dry firing and practicing and then i'm going to do more on this season i wonder if that's not going to disrupt their you know their flow throughout a season because we don't really know when this thing's going to really get started again like it was well absolutely i think that a bigger thing maybe is that maybe for quite a few like a big subset of competitors they have that like their one match that they want to do really good at right yeah. and if that one match is one of these that gets canceled or moved or whatever i can see them really you know kind of changing their motivation yeah. You know, so if their motivation to practice is because I'm going to go attend this special match of mine, then and that gets changed or moved, mm-hmm. then then they kind of have to rediscover, you know, what is my want? Mm. You know, what do I, how do I want to stay engaged in, in that kind of thing? Okay. Matt, what about you? What do you think that's going to, uh, 2020 is going to be impacted? Yeah, I mean, I think for a lot of people, matches is really all the shooting that they do. You know, they, they'll put in some dry fire. They don't put in as much practice. So I think for a lot of those people it's been a, a much bigger impact. Like we're talking about it. I think the, from the match we're shooting tomorrow to our last match is 71 days, right? So a little over, you know, a couple months there. And um, there's a lot of people that we know that haven't really shot live fire stuff since then. Yeah. You know, and as Charlie yeah. said, like we, we were shooting a lot of practices over the weekends and stuff like that. So we're still getting our reps in, and, you know, setting up large stages and things like that. It's, it's still pretty close to what a match is. And, I think last weekend we had like nine guys out there, so it's almost like a little mini match in itself, right? Uh, which you know is pretty nice, but you know, get a little bit more dry fire in, get a little more practice in. Um, same thing, there's a lot of people that are, um, you know, they kind of focus on those those matches that they really want to shoot. Like the Colorado State match already got canceled, um, the Rocky Mountain 300 got uh, pushed out to October, I think, now. And for some people, those were like the only two matches that they're really focusing on this year. Sure. So that's a big loss and with a lot of people. But uh, there's some other really good ones going on, like Area 2. Sign up for that starts on Monday. So we're all pretty excited about that one. You know, nationals are still happening. Um, so I think there's still plenty of good shooting to happen. And it's only people that are purposely or you know, making the choice to not want to shoot that are, that are not out there shooting right now. Do you think it tips the scales at the higher level when you're talking about people that have a chance of winning in division at nationals or at worlds do you think that it potentially could give somebody a better chance that didn't have as good of one before or maybe takes it away from somebody that was heavily favored um i don't really think so i think the people who are still focusing on those big those big matches are still putting the work in that they need to put in and and getting the reps in that they need to get in um you know losing a couple of club matches here and there is not going to be the end of the world you can still get the work in for something like that what about you, Charlie? Do you think it changes anything up at the higher levels? At the top end, absolutely nothing. Okay. I mean, most of the top dudes that are contending for national world titles, mm-hmm. they're not really, you know, club match goers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? You know, yeah. their club match is probably a local section match or whatnot. Sure. You know, so I, I don't think that, 
you know, this is really going to impact, you know, their performance at that level. I mean, the, the world shoot for 2020 got pushed out to next year. Okay. Uh-huh. So, I mean, those guys, so for them, there's, there's obviously a higher focus on the world shoot years where they're practicing a lot more higher level of participation. But since, you know, they found out that, oh, well, I got a year more right. to the world shoot. So that's probably going to change some of this stuff. Okay. But the nationals are still going to happen. And I don't think that, you know, the guys that are in contention are really going to have any difference. Okay. I think the big, you know, divergence, it'd be a pretty cool, like, statistics thing to run is to look at the results from the nationals this year. And I think you're going to see a way bigger divergence between that top five to ten percent mm-hmm. to everybody else okay like i think that there's going to be a way bigger drop off because i think human human nature is that when we get the opportunity to slack off yeah. or, or do more of the thing we like to do yeah. right <laughs> that in this scenario like the, the people that are going to sl- hit kind of like promoted towards slacking off and not practicing in this scenario if there's no matches to motivate them to practice they're not going to practice sure Right. So, and the guys that are motivated to always keep on top of their skills, they're, they're going to have that same motivation. Like, oh, now I have more time to practice. Okay. Right. So I think that for, it really kind of depends on people's nature or their want yeah. in the sport. It just kind of pushes the extreme closer to the edge on either side. Yeah. Uh, would you say that, uh, that there's going to be a, a higher level of appreciation when it comes to just having the matches, for example, uh, because, you know, I, I know for me anyway, I, having it taken away, even the option, uh, it was kind of this like weird realization of what do you, what do you mean? There's no matches, you know, and yeah. it's nothing from weather. I, I hope that there's a positive side of that too, where people, uh, appreciate it more. They're more grateful for it. You think you'll see that or maybe not? I, you know, I don't know. I, I think, Humans are creatures of habit, right? Sure, yeah. So, yeah, they'll appreciate it to start off with, but they'll just kind of revert back to what they're doing. <laughs> yeah, that's probably the perfect way to say it. Uh, all right, so let's move into uh, optics a little bit. Uh, I know both of you guys uh, have kind of been tinkering with um, some new setups and uh, different setups, but both of you guys chose uh, SIG optics, or, or in a way, I guess, Matt, you, you chose a SIG optic. But uh, talk to me a little bit about the optics you've been using and why you like them and some of the downfalls of them. Yeah, so I've been um, I'm running carry optics right now, and right now I'm running the uh, the Romeo three Maxes, and uh, I've done a little tinkering with all of them. Um, I was with the SRO first, and I think that really the SRO and the um, the three Max are probably the two bigger contenders right now in carry optics because that most people are kind of switching to that larger glass size, and I think there's more similarities between the two of them than there are differences. Okay. They're all, they're both really really similar. Um, you know, first off, they're really both set up for um, competition use they're not due to use optics you know they have the rounded glass that everybody's seen like you know the torture chest that Aaron Cowan does and things like that and you know the SRO doesn't you know it withstands one drop and that's probably a little bit more uh, durable than the three max and I have my own experience with that with dropping an SRO from (laughs) even a lower a lower height with an optic cover on it and I still broke it wasn't it in the bag as well it was in the bag as well yeah yeah onto like linoleum so yeah yeah so it's like they're they're not incredibly durable that's because it's it's supposed to be concrete rated not with an only amount of it wasn't it wasn't a hard enough surface yeah <laughs> but yeah i dropped it at like probably that perfect angle that just you know was able to crack it and stuff but um you know overall i've been really happy with the three max there, there's a couple of little things about it that i'm just kind of curious of if they're going to die pretty much any slide mounted optic is going to die after you know sure. certain amount of use they they just they get so many reps on that slide and moving back and forth and stuff but one weird thing about the 3 Max is it's got a, it's 
kind of tapered in how it's cut. It's, it's angled, it's almost dovetailed. So I've got both of my slides on, I'm running the, the 320 X5 Legions right now, and I got both of the slides cut for that optic. And uh, unlike other cuts into slides that I've seen in the past, they, um, the, you almost have to like snap the optic in with like some RMR or something like that. Mm -hmm. With the three max, it's got a little bit of wiggle room. Okay. And it's because of that kind of like dovetail cut to it. It's a little bit different. Um, so like the slide cuts that I have right now, they don't really have any like nubs that it fits onto and there's a little bit of gap. So it's really just the screws that are kind of holding that optic in place. Okay. So I'm curious to see if that one shears off a little quicker than some of the other ones I've seen, but I think I'm about 7,000 rounds on one of them right now. And so far, you know, so good. Still working. I've got another one that I'm going to run a little bit too, but, uh, curious to kind of see what happens there. But, but overall, um, that three max has been a little nice. There was a couple things with the SRO that were kind of weird. Um, a lot of people pointed out, like you look into the sun, you see a second dot, which is a little bit, a little bit odd. Um, and I've kind of seen back and forth on who thinks that which one has a crisper dot. Um, personally, I think that the Romeo three has a little bit, a little bit better of a dot for my eye. Okay. And I'm running the six MOA, so I like the little bit bigger of a size there. Okay. Um, the other thing we've kind of done is parallax testing on. And um, just kind of seeing, like, you know, if you're not directly doing that, that dot center in the screw or in, in the glass, you know, kind of what does that look like? And although they were really close, I think the SRO was a little bit more dramatic in the edges. Okay. But I know Charlie, he's running the 3XL on his open gun, and that one probably has the best parallax we've seen of any of the optics. And, and that glass is incredibly clear, too. You, yeah, you tested a bunch of optics on it, right? Yeah, so I, on my old, so we went down this parallax rabbit hole <laughs> and really the thing that triggered me into that is we matt and i shoot this carbine match mm. and one of the divisions is limited and you can only have a red dot and i was using a an mro for that and it like anything within 100 yards it's pretty much good to go if, you know the dot is kind of anywhere in the glass and once you get past that and this match usually has like six or eight inch plates at 200 yards and if if that on that mro site if that dot wasn't like dead center of the glass mm. it was totally off target okay you know the because the parallax was so bad with that <clears throat> so i went down this rabbit hole of buying a bunch of different red dots and probably spending way more money than i should have on it <laughs> and um i settled on an eotech the xps2-1 which is just the one one moa dot it doesn't have the ring in it okay and for that site for that that carbine thing, I know this is like a side thing, but that site had the best, you know, every red dot is gonna have a certain amount of parallax, but like a good example would be like the MRO, if I put the red dot at the edges of the glass mm -hmm. and shot at a full-size USPSA target at 200 yards, mm -hmm. the hits were not even on paper. And with that uh, EOTech site, in the same scenarios of displacing the dot at the you know edges of the glass, it only shift the point of impact maybe five or six inches. Okay. You know, and for us to be shooting like when the dots like at the super edge of the glass, yeah, is pretty rare. It's you true. Know, it can be like a little bit off center in certain shooting positions, kind of in a normal what we get forced into in that match. So learning that parallax stuff on the rifle side, I kind of I started looking at my pistol sights, and I have a I have a nine major open gun that has a, a delta point on it, and that. That Delta Point Pro, it had like a weird parallax bubble on the right side of the glass. Mm. And then, so I started comparing that to other, like I have like a couple hollow sun red dots mm -hmm. laying around. I think I have a 507 and a 510C. And 
like kind of did that same kind of testing to see how much the dot moved around the glass due to the parallax. And surprisingly, the um, the SIG sights, the Romeo 3XL that I got, I, I actually got two of them now. I got a 3MOA and a 6MOA, so I could try them both on my open, my Atlas Chaos open gun. And the I started off with a 3MOA on that, and it had very, very little like observable parallax, like how much you see it, the, the dot itself deviate off your aiming spot mm-hmm. and kind of a, like a testing scenario. Sure. And it was very similar to actually that EOTech site, which was, I was really happy with. Like, unfortunately, like that EOTech is way too big to be putting on a <laughs> yeah, gun. Just a little but, bit. <laughs> just a little bit. But I, I've been using the, the XL version of that SIG Romeo 3 instead mm-hmm. of the Max. Uh, for me, as like, hey, more glass, more better. Or yeah, exactly. Maybe it's better. I don't know. <laughs> Especially if it's like free floated, you know, yeah. like slide ride. <laughs> so I, I I started off with a three, and then I switched. I recently switched over to the six, and um, both both sites kind of like have their pluses and minuses. Like the three obviously consumes less of the target, mm-hmm. the dot itself, and uh, the biggest difference that I really noticed between them is that the like. Maybe I'm the, the abnormal red dot shooter, but I rarely run my dots like fully maxed out okay. in brightness. Like for me, if I have it fully punched out in brightness, that's all I see. And I start focusing on the dot instead of the target. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's like opposite of how we should be shooting dots. I mean, we need to have a hard target focus and peripherally put the dot on the stuff. So to me, those graduations of, of brightness are more important than how bright is it at max. And... The thing that I noticed, the biggest difference that I noticed between the three and the six in the SIG sites is that they had about the same maximum brightness, but it, it seemed like the steps down from max were not, on the three, they were a, a lot bigger steps. So I always kind of felt like in this lighting scenario, it's a little too bright on this level. And then if I turn it down one level, it's a little not bright enough. Right. So it almost felt like, man, I need this. Instead of first and second gear, I need first and a half gear yeah, <laughs> in yeah. the dark dot brightness. That's a common complaint, though. And, and, that's, and that's what the 6 got me, actually, okay. is that for whatever reason, that 6 MOA dot, uh, I can, I'm can i usually like two levels down from the top. is mm-hmm. kind of like that comfort zone of most of the varied lighting conditions that I, I usually shoot in. And for me... Like if I did two down from the top with the three MOA and then two down from the top with the six MOA, they they look at a different level of brightness. Okay. The six actually looks less bright, but since it's bigger, it, it's it's easier to see fast, so to say. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm I'm liking the six better right now. So maybe that's because I'm getting old man eyes. <laughs> so while we're sort of touching on this rabbit hole, just walk me a little bit through like the testing that you got. Like what would, it, what would the test look like where you guys were kind of looking at these parallax shifts and point of impact? Yeah, so you can obviously, you can go out to the range and like basically put your gun in a rest of some sort. So you, that's like not a variable. Mm-hmm. And so it's always hitting, like shooting in the same place. And then you observe and look, like put your head behind the sight in a manner that displaces the dot, and then you reposition the gun to where the dot is, and then you can shoot and then see where the point of impact is. But you can save a bunch of ammo by just kind of replicating that in a dry fire scenario where you would place the sight in a stationary position, put it on the lowest setting that you can get would basically create the smallest dot, Mm -hmm. most refined dot that you're almost like looking through, 
at an aiming spot that is a distance that's like maybe 25, 30 yards away. Okay. So if you look at the center of the glass, put your head right behind the sight, put it on an aiming spot. So you're physically moving the sight to put it on an aiming spot. And then you just move your head behind the sight, left and right and up and down. Mm-hmm. You can observe how that dot displaces off of that aiming spot. Okay. And that'll basically tell you the magnitude of parallax that's happening as the dot is going across the glass. Okay. And for most high quality um, expensive sites, red dot sites, the par- there's, there's, like I said at the start of this, there's always going to be parallax. Sure. So like if any companies are saying, oh yeah, we got a parallax free red dot, like it's, it's a bunch of bullshit. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There's always going to be a certain level of parallax, but it's really comes under the magnitude and then the use case of what that site's being used in. Like for, for most of the, the shooting that we do in USPSA, we're never really going to realize or be penalized for the amount of parallax that you, you have on even the worst sites. Sure. Because we're not forced into those scenarios where the shot is that difficult at a certain distance that's going to displace the hit off the target. We're, we're going to have way more variance in just holding the gun steady or pressing the trigger without displacing the sights, and, you know, those kind of things. But you can, like, for the um, hollow sun sights and the, like, the 510C, it had a very even move displacement of the dot off of that aiming spot Mm -hmm. from a parallax perspective and all the different axes so up and down and left and right um the 507c since that class is actually curved a lot more at the top the parallax would would be like a dramatic upward movement of the dot as i move my head up on the glass Hmm. but for the sig uh, xl and the maxes you would still have a very little bit of displacement, but it was very even. It was very even, like kind of motion agnostic. Okay. Like it wouldn't matter if you went left or right or up or down, it'd be the same amount. The only kind of abnormally that I've seen in that, like like a, if you go left versus right, and it would have, produce a different result, was um, I had uh, the Delta Point Pro, the dot would go, when I would move my head to the right while observing the dot, the dot would move to the right in the glass and then sharply move upwards, mm. even though I wasn't moving my head upwards. Okay. And But it wouldn't do that to the left. So that it's like there's some kind of like weird bubble in the glass or some formation thing problem with that part of the glass. And I actually observed that in one of the, I got another, I, had a, I initially got a uh, EOT, e, EOTech uh, EXPS2, mm-hmm. And that had the same kind of scenario, mm-hmm. but it was to the left. Okay. And to me, for, for like for a rifle, the only time your head's really coming, usually when your head's coming off the side or you're displacing your head, it's like off of the stock. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's yeah. like the, yeah. the worst place to have parallax. Yeah. So I actually, I sent that one back to EOTech and they're really good about it. They just swapped it out. And then the one I got back didn't have the issue. And that was kind of one of the interesting findings was that between the same model of the same optic, but just two different ones, mm-hmm. you can notice slight differences in them. Yeah, um, really? Yeah. That's insane. So 18 months ago, SIG would have been sort of like a, a joke as far as like a realistic optic option. Uh, what do you guys think changed in SIG? Is it their manufacturing? Is it their engineering? What is it that sort of got them back into the reputable running? Not only that, but you guys both picked it. What is it you think that kind of got them back into that that race that's kind of hard to say I, mean, I think um you know with it just being a second generation or third generation of the optics hopefully they just took some of those negatives that they had from the previous ones and fixed out you know figured out some of the kinks um 
it also seems like with the Romeo 3 Max that they built that one off of the footprint of the RTS 2. And I've seen a couple of people post too that the internals seem pretty similar. Mm. Um, so they might have, you know, borrowed a couple of uh, things here and there from that to, to kind of help improve. Um, but yeah, I, mean, I think that that's one of the things we've noticed too with like Hollis on like the 507 to the 508. Yeah. Uh, huge, or the Gen, the Gen 2 uh, 508, huge differences in that in a pretty short amount of time. Mm. And most of that, most of those things were based off of customer feedback. I think with the optics, you just have to run like a lot of reps through them mm-hmm. and to see all those little things that happen. And then, you know, if they do their job correctly, they're able to correct those things in the, in the, the next generations of them. Okay. Anything you want to add to SIG sort of come up? Mm, I mean, I, I, I obviously, I don't work for SIG. I don't know sure. how they do their business and all that, but I mean, I don't think it's a secret that, I mean, there's, there's probably one place in China that makes almost all of these sites. Right. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's a factor of like, let's slap this brand of sticker on this one and another brand on another one. But there's a little bit of like, from a technology perspective, like if you were to take apart some of these sites, it'd be pretty tough to, you know, define which one's which. Sure. Because they're all very, very similar. But I, I think that on one side, people could look at that as a negative. But on the other side, if there's one vendor that's making all of these sites and they're learning all those same lessons from all these, the use case of all these different brands of sites, mm-hmm. then I think that's a good thing, yeah. right? Because then, then everybody and all the different brands kind of like win from that R&D and the, hey, this, you know, solder joint, is it going to work right? Or this breaks or cracks or whatever, the glass needs this, you know, level of protection or not, or is coating or, you know, I, I'm pretty sure that, you know, if you look through the glass of like, some people would probably say like the Seymours, the RTSs mm-hmm. are like identical to the SIG sites. But if you were to look through the glass of each of those, the glass, at least the tinting they're doing on them is different. Okay. Right? So I'm pretty sure that each one of these vendors or manufacturers, so to say, or brands is kind of has their own little signature of requirements put on that stuff. Okay. So hopefully that drives, you know, the products of all this better. But I think that more importantly, it like everything that is made can be unmade. Sure. Right? It's just mm-hmm. a matter of how long that takes and how good the customer service is behind that. Yeah. You know, so I, I'm yet to have, you know, hear any horrible stories from SIG customers mm-hmm. saying, hey, I had a hell of a time getting something warranty replaced or anything like that. And that was definitely part of my my purchasing decision around that. Okay. Right. I, I didn't want to save 20 bucks on a site because of it's getting from, you know, Joe blows red dots to yeah. save 20 bucks. I, I'd rather pay a little bit of a premium on something that I know that it's being sold by and supported by a manufacturer. That's going to take care of you. Yeah. And I, you know, I think there's kind of two sides of this. One is going to be the naysayers. that says that all of that testing doesn't really give you any, uh, any formidable information. But my argument to that is that most people only have enough to invest in one of these optics. And I think that you should demand the highest performance because like you said, the price difference between these is it's negligible in my, in my opinion, because it's just, it's hundred dollars maybe here or there. And so I think you should demand that performance from frankly, an overpriced little gizmo, you know, it's, they're all pretty expensive. And so I think it's crazy. You guys tried that parallax stuff. That's super interesting. I've always, kind of been curious about that stuff but you know it just never really piqued my interest but especially when you're talking about USPSA and the you know the the different glass options there's from really small to really big and you know people are different people have different sort of uh you know tastes I guess but 
going into taste, uh, you shoot limited, you shoot carry optics, you used to shoot limited. Uh, I've talked to a couple other people about this, and so uh, I just kind of wanted to quickly ask you about your transition from limited to carry optics, uh, some of the differences or maybe what pushed it, and uh, you know we're going to get into a little bit of how they're similar and how they're different. Yeah, I said a couple things. So one of the thing, one of the things was from purely from a training standpoint. I had a couple people talk about it, and I you know, read it a bunch of places that. We're talking about dry fire, talking about live fire. The amount of information that a red dot can tell you about what you're doing wrong, mm -hmm. it's a lot easier to pick up than sometimes with iron sights, right? Yeah. Um, you know, you have a bad trigger pull, you do something like that. You really can see what that dot does and it, it's, it kind of ingrains in your brain a little bit more for like that short amount of time. And you can, you have that chance to correct it. So um, that was a big initial push for, for me. Um, the other thing though is that I always thought I had really good eyes mm -hmm. until I started really getting into limited pretty heavily <laughs> and, and I realized that my eyesight wasn't what I thought it was. Yeah. Um, that changing of focus distance and you know, the, the speed that it takes to do that, I, I was just way too slow at it. Um, and I realized that there was a lot of things I needed to do, at least you know, trying corrective lenses, which I did, went down that road a little bit, definitely not as much as Charlie has with that. <laughs> Um, but, um, yeah, that was kind of the, one of the weirdest things was I realized how much time I was going to have to put in to just working on my eyes, mm -hmm. um, and, you know, practicing, fo um, changing focus distance and things like that. And I spent tons of money on changing sights and trying different glasses and, and trying things like that to see if there's, there's never, there's never really that like magical answer, mm -hmm. you know, that you can find it. You kind of just find it's more putting the time behind it and, and actually getting used to it in that sense. Um, so that was one of the probably the final things that really pushed me towards carrier optics. Um, I really wish that we could shoot 2011s with slide mounted optics. That'd be really nice. Yeah. Uh, that, that would be kind of cool. So I'm, I'm a little bummed about having to give up, give up my 2011s from that, from that sense, but I've been pretty happy with the SIGs. Um, one, one of the big things, obviously going from major power factor to minor and, and major scoring to minor scoring puts a lot more emphasis on points. And I've definitely been that guy that just wants to go as fast as I possibly can. And, you know, especially in the beginning, you make that switch over, you realize that that just doesn't really work if you're not getting those points. Yeah. Um, it's much more dramatic in carry optics, especially when you think you, you, know, you think you burned down a stage and it's like, oh, that was really good. Like, what was that time? That time was great, you know? And then you look at your hit back and it's like, hmm, okay, that wasn't as good as I thought it was. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so um, that's been the, the focus recently has been just trying to figure out like, well, how can I you know, keep that speed but get the points and, you know, figuring out the importance of the points, so... Um, yeah. So Charlie, what keeps you in limited? Keeps you from deviating? So what keeps me in limited? That's, yeah. that's a really good question. I, you know, I definitely think, like I started, I pretty much started this game and shot most of it, my tenure of it in limited. I, I really like that the aspect of iron sights. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's the old like Western cowboy in me or whatever that to say that I, I could pick up any gun that has iron sights on it and be able to know how does this work and call shots and that kind of thing. And so, I mean, that's why I, I stick with limited and I recently, like I, I've shot open in the past and I have a GM classification in open, but I, I have not like shot that like a whole dedicated season to that. Right. Like I'm, I like to say like I'm an open tourist, <laughs> so I kind of dabble here and there in it. Yeah. But I, I, you know, I, as the older that I get, the, the, the more my focus from far to close or close to far slows down and I've gone like Matt has said like I've gone 
through, I don't know how many different kind of prescription glasses and sight sizes. And at some point I'm going to have to tap out and say, it's time to just shoot a dot. <laughs> and I, I basically told myself that, you know, how, how much my focal speed degraded over last season. So through all of 2019 to 2020, if I have that same magnitude of degradation this year, mm-hmm. I'm going to be forced into shooting a dot okay. in, in 2021. And so I'm still committed to shooting limited this year, but next year I wouldn't be surprised if I just put down the iron sight guns and say, let's go to go dot crazy. <laughs> since, uh, since carry optics has, uh, what has it been four or five years? I think since it yeah. started, how many people have you seen leave limited and go to carry optics? Well, there's tons. And, yeah. and I think that's awesome. I think that the, the movement of, of the comp, you know, competitors over to carry optics would have happened at an even more rapid pace if the care optics didn't start off with 10 rounds in the mags mm. you know it really wasn't until they start, started allowing uh, 140 millimeter length mags give people 22 23 rounds in a mag everybody likes more pews yeah and everybody likes red dots it makes your life a little bit easier making those harder shots and that kind of stuff so and if we really look it's unfortunate we don't have any matches right now but yeah. <laughs> if we look at the history of you know pre-covid of looking at the the density of each division, like how how deep is the competitor base in each one of the divisions before that, the, the biggest erosion seems to be happening in production with a lot of production shooters moving over to carry optics and obviously uh, more of the uh, limited shooters moving over to that or even open shooters moving back into that because it's a, it's a much cheaper race car to keep racing. Sure. Right? You know, shooting open is... is like some people like to say it's, it's like the, the F1 of the shooting sports. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm yet to see an F1 uh, team that <laughs> run on a very cheap budget yeah. because, you know, stuff breaks and it's hard to stay on top of stuff and everything else, you know, costs a lot more. Whereas uh, it, it's really hard to, to not point newer shooters or even ex- existing shooters and say, hey, look at this carry optics thing. And it's a lot more cost effective. It's easier to get ammo. Um the, the sites are not un, like crazy expensive. They're a lot more ruggedized than they used to be. Mm. So, I, you know, I think it's, as the years go on, I think that there's going to be right now, like from a participation level of each division, limited is the highest attended, um, like nationwide division. Okay. And it's closely followed by carry optics. And I, I would not be surprised that two, three, four, five years from now that it is number one. Mm. Yeah, so I think that's kind of cool. Yes, uh, I think the parallels and the differences between them make it intriguing too. And I was kind of, since you've done both, I was wanting to get your take a little bit on, uh, you have one with a dot, one that's shooting minor. When you put them up against each other, they're really actually kind of competitive. Uh, do you think that that drives some you know, competition in the sport? It drives people to come to the sport because uh, you know, the, there's always like the, that's the open guy, that's a PCC guy, but limited and carry optics have this kind of like weird relationship between each other. Do you think that helps the sport or will help the sport going forward? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, um, I mean, everybody kind of saw, well, not everybody, but a lot of people saw the, uh, how close like JJ and Max were last year at Nationals, um, shooting limited versus carry optics. And it's really cool when you start looking at those and breaking them down, like what's the strengths and the weaknesses of both divisions mm-hmm. um, and, and how, and if you realize or understand how you can leverage those, those things within the, the, the within the different divisions, um, you can get those things to be really, really, really close, which is pretty cool. Um, 
Yeah, so you know, being able to have a little bit more speed at distance, potentially with smaller targets with a with a dot versus having that major hit back or major power, yeah, major power factor for some of the closer stuff. You goes a little bit faster. Um, you know, trigger pull is a little bit different, obviously, with a little bit twenty elevens versus most of the uh, most of the guns people are using in carry optics. But um, I think it might change even a little bit more now with the weight change. We'll see how that affects things. You know, get a little bit heavier carry optics guns. So curious to see how that affects some stuff. But even with um, the participation part, I think that that there's a lot of a lot more manufacturers now that are tailoring their guns towards being carry optics ready. Mm-hmm. You know, having those cuts right from the factory, and then obviously with the weight change, it brings um, guns like the the CZ Shadow Two, which is incredibly popular in production. But you know, previously having to get that gun a lot of weight milled out of it, having to get this the optic cut, um, and they're about to release their optic ready version, which you know, kind of right out of the box is going to be carry optics ready. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think that's that's pretty cool. That's that's gonna help that participation level too, especially with those people um, you know, that come into the sport starting with production or limited minor things yeah. like that. It kind of makes that next step to carry optics pretty easy because sometimes their gun might already be cut for it. They just got to buy an optic and put it on there, right? <laughs> Everything else is pretty much the same. So do you think that there's a good competition between the two divisions, or do you think that there's still enough difference where they they don't uh, converge all that much? You know. I- from a scoring perspective, I mean, you have major versus minor, which is kind of like two different animals in itself. Mm-hmm. But I, I think the coolest part about it is that it, like, I usually tell people, like, anything within 10 yards, it's a wash. Mm-hmm. It's when you start pushing the targets, especially partial targets, out past 15, at 15 or beyond. That's where the carry optics guys using a dot can can kind of like shoot those targets at a higher rate of speed than the limited people. And that's where I think it's really cool where you kind of have these like two different methods of getting to the same result, which you could watch a top end carry optics guy shoot a stage. And if the stage has a variance of target difficulties and distances and that kind of stuff that kind of exercises all those different things, Mm -hmm. it's pretty cool to watch because you can see the... Like if you had some overlaid video footage of two top guys shooting at the same stage, you could definitely see like one guy pulling away on this where it kind of favors his division, another guy pulling away in another area that favors his division. So I think that's really cool. And I mean, the one thing that it's kind of confusing for a lot of people is that, you know, like officially USPSA, you know, has a hard distinction saying, hey, each division is only competing against that division right <laughs> yeah. but then again every match you go to they're like what are the combined results you know, how did i do against this person this other division you know or like i, I joke with uh, matt quite often i'm like so i didn't let any pcc guys win today you know, <laughs> kind of thing. so i think there's always that that friendly competition with the other divisions which sure. makes it kind of cool and i think that's also cool in the matter that if you have like two decently skilled shooters in different divisions that can compete in the overalls very closely, I think that makes it more fun for everybody. Yeah. Maybe the people too that are doing it that are sort of head and shoulders above that said division that maybe, you know, creates a little bit more competition. You get a better performance out of that person. Yeah. Um, people will probably think that this is an obligatory, obligatory conversation, but it's definitely not. Uh, you started off with an XD40, and now you shoot an Atlas. Yes. Uh, the last time we talked, we sort of just jumped from one to the other and then left that topic. Uh, talk to me a little bit about that transition, going from a Polymer XD uh, all the way to you picking up an Atlas and then why you stuck with them. 
So, um, yeah, I started out and I, I got that XD. It was an XDM40, and it was the new hotness, the brand new gun on the market, and of course it had to be the best one, right? So that was that was the extent of my my research on getting that gun, <laughs> yeah. and it was absolutely the wrong gun to get at the time in both production and in limited, because in production you're shooting forty, so you you're forced to shoot, you're you're basically forced to score minor, mm-hmm. but you're shooting major power factor ammo, <laughs> and then on the limited side that the gun was so new you, you couldn't get like mag extensions or any of that for it, right. so it was it was at a significant uh, capacity you know, limitation and limited. Okay. So that's when I switched over to shooting the EAA or Tamfolio style uh, limited guns. And I primarily did that the did that because it was a cost thing. Like you could, it, back then you could get a t- totally decked out uh, EAA witness limited gun for like 1200 bucks. And, and to me, that was like, hey, uh, that's, I could get two of those for the cost of one 2011 style pistol mm-hmm. and so i was like at that time i really didn't know well is this something i really want to do i don't want to blow a bunch of money on something i don't know if i really want to do or not sure so fast forward a couple of years and i'm, I'm using those still using those eaa guns and the tanfolio guns and it came back to like okay now i'm heavily invested in this platform mm-hmm. you know this is going to take a lot to get me knocked off of this platform i got a million magazines and all these parts and i've learned all those hard lessons yeah so it, it came to a point where I kept, um, for the, the optimal setup that I liked in a configuration, I would hog out the slides and make them really light, and I'd run a really light recoil spring for the how I liked the, the feel of the recoil and the tracking of the gun. The unfortunate part about that is that that configuration would chew through slides like nobody's business. Like I would crack two or three slides a season, and that was just regular par for course. Okay. And to me, it was just kind of like, hey, we're, we're playing with F1 cars here. Stuff breaks. You run like a rental and it's going to crash. <laughs> right? And it, they basically, like, back then, when I first started shooting those guns, I could get a slide for, or they didn't sell just the slide. You'd have to buy a whole upper. Okay. And so a whole upper was like 250 bucks, which wasn't bad. Yeah. Then it went to 450 and then it went to 750 Okay. <laughs> and when it went to 750 and by then, you know, at that time, you could get a whole gun for 1000 yeah. bucks. And I'm like, I just refuse just by principle. I'm not paying <laughs> 750 for just an upper. Yeah. So <clears throat> at that time, one of our local gunsmiths, um, Ricky Bear, he, he would always give me a hard time and we'd go to a bunch of matches together. And he's like, you got to get off those things. This game's a 2011 game. You know? <laughs> and I have big hands and I could never shoot those things because I'd always get slide bite. Mm. And he's like, I'll create, I'll, I'll do whatever it takes to create a beaver tail on the 2011 that will not slide by you. And I, I took him up on that and I'm like, okay, dude, if you make something, you know, some Franken beaver tail that will keep my hand out of the slide, then I'll try one of those 2011s. So that that's how my... My transition is basically twofold. One of it was EAA priced me out of it because mm. they raised the price of the uppers too much. And the other side of it is that I, I got tired of, of basically being the, the lone ranger at all the matches I went to. I was like the only dude shooting those guns. So it meant that I had to support myself do all my own gunsmithing and all that kind of stuff. And like holsters and all that other you know, supporting materials just was more painful. Okay. Like you've you've been in the 2011 market enough to know that like that for any STIs or SVs out there, there's a humongous market of aftermarket stuff. Mm-hmm. It's not hard to find magazines or holsters or parts or whatever. It is a lot harder on those other guns. 
So that's when I switched over to the 2011 stuff and I shot uh, the Ricky Bear 2011 guns for I think three years by shooting his guns and then I had an opportunity to shoot for Atlas Gunworks. And I, I wanted to, at that time, shooting the, the Ricky Bear guns, I, I kind of had to have a fleet of them to keep them going. Like I had, at one point I had five of them because there was always something happening. I was like either breaking <laughs> this or wearing this out or this gun is no longer accurate. And there's always this swirl of something's currently busted, something's getting fixed or something was fixed, but I haven't had time to, you know, repair it yet or test it. I should say, to verify, hey, does it really still work? Yeah. That kind of thing. And I, I wanted to get into, I wanted to get out of that melee of when most of my practice was testing stuff to make sure it still worked. I was like, man, it just seems like a lot of brain damage to be working on, you know, maintaining the, the function of these guns. So I started looking around at the different things. And I had known Adam from Atlas Gunworks from the matches he sponsored and been to and that kind of stuff. And we'd talked over the years. And, and there's a, kind of like probably two false starts, so to say, of him saying, hey, I want you to shoot my stuff. And yeah. it just didn't work out for whatever reason. Sure. But then, you know, I think it's, this is my, this is going to, this is my full second year shooting Atlas guns. Okay. And um, I've got a, a Titan from him. I actually, when I first started um, with him, I said, hey, that, that's when they first started uh, selling the uh, Nemesis gun. Limited, where it has a sight block in the front, some extra weight out there. And um, he had the Titan and the Nemesis. It was kind of like his two things. And the Titan was a standard kind of 2011 setup, long dust cover with a bull barrel, that kind of thing. And he sent me each one of those, and I tested both of them out back to back. And the Nemesis is really cool looking, and I was like, man, I really want to make this thing work for me. And um, all the testing that I did with it, and I don't want to disparage that gun at all. It's an awesome gun. Yeah. But I, I grip the shit out of the guns with a lot of pressure. And that extra weight on the front that the Nemesis has was too much. Mm. So I couldn't find a, an ammo load or a spring setup or any of that that would keep it, the muzzle from dipping after the slide would snap forward. Whereas I could come up with that configuration on the, the Titan series of guns. Okay. And that's why I went with the Titan instead of the Nemesis. And every, I, I answer that question like a million times almost every <laughs> major match I go to. They're like, why don't you have a Nemesis? <laughs> and for me, I've always been about, I want to use the tools that easily, you know, help me maximize my performance. Yeah. Right. And, and I don't want to run a certain product if it's not going to provide maximum performance. Like if the Atlas guns did not perform at a better level than the prior guns that I shot, I wouldn't be shooting them. Yeah. And, and that's the reality of it. I, I don't want to be in a position where I'm shilling a product that I don't have confidence in. And, and that's not the scenario that I'm in. I, I have a hundred percent confidence in the stuff that I use and I only use stuff that I really like. Yeah. Alright, so when you started using Atlas, what were the performance differences that you saw uh, with just your own shooting with the skill level not really varying too much? Uh, so from a, from a, it's hard to quantify what is the value of it, an Atlas over other guns. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wish I could say, oh yeah, you put it in your hands and you're 10% better. I, I think that if a gun, a, any kind of 1911, 2011 based platform gun is built properly, 
you're going to yield that same level of accuracy, the same level of reliability, mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. It's hard. I think it's really hard for those those companies to differentiate their stuff on just pure performance in that manner, because the you know the com competition world is driven such a high bar of performance yeah. that if you can't achieve you know a highly accurate gun that's a highly reliable thing, you're not going to be in business, right? So the the things that that differentiates uh, Atlas stuff in my mind from others is not it's kind of like the Toyota factor, mm -hmm. right? Where you can buy any brand of car up and drive that thing for 10,000 miles and they're all very similar. Sure. 20,000 miles, they're very similar. Usually around that 50 to 60,000 mile mark, that's when you start seeing a divergence in quality and performance between those different manufacturers. And that's where I think Atlas really kind of separates itself from a uh, perspective of quality, right? And, and this is, it's kind of hard to market that to people because I think the average competitor out there is probably shooting maybe 10,000 rounds a year, maybe, mm -hmm. usually in between five and 10. So if you have a, a high performance 1911, 2011 based pistol that has a, a performance life of let's say 50,000 rounds, that customer is, they're gonna be five years down the road, 10 years down the road before they use it up. So to say, yeah. whereas uh, like my, I did a 50,000 round review on, on my YouTube channel, I think it was a couple months ago now, but how that thing looks and functions at 50,000 rounds is just the same as it was new. Okay. And I have no, you know, I, like, I shouldn't say never, but I don't think that there's going to be any catastrophic issues or performance degradation between 50,000 all the way up to 100,000 rounds. Okay. And I don't think that there's very many gun builders out there that are building 100,000 round guns. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think that there's a big chunk of guys out there building 40,000 round guns, 50,000 round guns. So from a, a overall use case life perspective, I think that that's where the differentiator is with Atlas products versus other gun builders. And I'll, uh, I'll link that. YouTube and notes to this episode too, so if people want to check it out, they can uh, they can see it because I think that's a that's a huge factor, right? Like the price of an atlas is what is probably what gets most people deterred as opposed to anything else. Because yeah. if you hold one for ten seconds, uh, you just you feel the difference in it, and it comes down to it's built by shooters too. The safety is not having to go all the way down, so you can get a you know more optimal grip on the grip safety. All of that stuff is just these little tiny fine notes that just shows that somebody who built this also shoots it. And then, you know, if you can get 50,000 rounds out of it, I mean, I think that, you know, a lot of people that, you know, work in construction, they judge their vehicle by the price per mile. How much did I pay the final miles when I got rid of it? Uh, if you take that on an atlas to 50,000 rounds, well, then I think you've got a heck of a deal as opposed to maybe just that upfront cost. Yeah, and I think that the other factor to think about is that there's, there's quite a few gun builders in that same Atlas price range mm -hmm. that are, I don't want to say cutting corners, but there are definitely certain like coatings, for example, like there are plenty of guys out there that are doing like, I don't want to say subpar, but less durable coatings. Mm -hmm. Like if you look at my video about the 50,000 round thing, it, the, like all of the Atlas guns, they primarily do um, DLC coatings like black DLCs or gray DLCs or those kind of things. 
the DLC coatings is it's expensive, right? But it is mega durable. Like all of all of my competition guns, I use Kydex holsters. Right. Right. If you were to take a even a hard chrome gun and do fifty thousand you know rounds worth of draws <laughs> on that, you're going to see wear. Yeah. Right. And Cerakote, there's no chance that stuff's going to get sawed through immediately. You know, and those kind of like other like electroless nickel and some of the other common um, coatings out there, those things are not going to hold up to a Kydex draw very much. Where, whereas the DLC, like if you look at my gun, it looks brand new. Yeah. Like coating, it looks, it's like, has this ever been in a holster? I don't know. <laughs> you don't even see any wear on it. Yeah. You know, so I think that that's an important factor is that they're building the guns knowing that they want every single aspect of it to be optimal, mm -hmm. right? And, and I think they do a really good job of really controlling the things that they can control, right? If they have a hard time, you know, getting certain parts to build their guns, they're like, screw it, we'll just make them ourselves. Yeah. You know, so they can really control the dimensions of the parts and the quality control of it and the hardness of things and all that stuff. Well, like we talked about earlier with SIG, they stand by their product and they're honest and upfront. And I can all stand by that. Uh, they, they'll deal with whatever the issue is uh, as best that they can. They're, I've never heard of them not helping somebody out or not making something right, uh, even though it, it doesn't happen all that often. It's uh, and it's an expensive game for them a lot of the times too to you know to ship these parts or to Absolutely. to have them shipped to them. And so uh, you know the 2011 thing, I, I've been saying this for a while. I think it's going to be a part of more areas than just competition. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm just kind of curious what your take is if you would carry a 2011 or if you think that would be more of an option going forward. Um, so as of right now, I think I'd have to put more rounds on one myself as far as the carry options go. I know Atlas is definitely jumping into that, that carry game and we talk about STI, that was a big focus for them this year and things like that. Um, you know, for me, it's always, I've always considered tight tolerances to be one of those, like, you know, when you're talking about pocket lint and sweat and, and, and that kind of stuff, you know, just that, just all that crap that can she get it. Does. Yeah. Just all, just, yeah. Just all that crap that can get into a gun when you're carrying it, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis and just kind of like, you know, throwing it on a desk, throwing it in a holster, things like that. And, you know, not wanting to like, I mean, for my competition guns, like, especially with 2011s, they, I was cleaning them after every match and stuff like that. And, you know, my Glocks that I choose to carry, they, they don't really have to do that type of type of work to them. Now that said, I mean, that's just me not having the rounds downrange through them yet. You know, I've seen some torture chests that people have put you know, 10, 15, 20,000 rounds through them straight. And the only negatives about them usually were the magazines. If they didn't clean the magazines, it'd have issues. But even, you know, that, that could be an issue too, though. Um, I would love to see them, you know, out, out there more. They're, they're, they're great guns. And especially if you're carrying one, if you're using one for competition, and that's what you're used to, you're used to manipulating that gun, that'd be a great option to carry too, right? 